Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Today, I talk with Congresswoman Annie Custer. She represents New Hampshire's 2nd District. She's been an important voice for protecting our democracy, addressing sexual assault and the opioid crisis, as well as expanding opportunity by increasing broadband and good jobs. What I admire most about Congresswoman Custer is not only her good work, but her willingness to talk powerfully and personally about her own experiences with sexual assault and her family's struggles with mental health and substance abuse. As you will hear, politics is personal for her, from the fear for her life during the insurrection to her efforts to build bipartisan support for legislation to address the challenges of today. Listen to hear more from this extraordinary leader. Congresswoman Custer, welcome to an honorable profession. It's wonderful to be speaking with you this morning. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thank you so much. Can we start with the state of our democracy, such that it is? You're a co-sponsor of the For the People Act, H.R. 1, which is seeking one of the most comprehensive reforms to our democratic systems in a long time. Can you talk a little bit about why you're co-sponsoring that legislation and what you see as its likelihood for success? Well, Ryan, interesting you would ask that today. So this morning I had the chance to lead the Pledge of Allegiance as the session opened in the House. And every time I'm just hit with the notion of one nation, indivisible, and these are such challenging times. And for me, the most important thing we can do is make sure that every citizen has a voice in this process that they're heard. And by that, I mean they're heard at the ballot box and that they feel their voice is taken into account in their government and in the United States Congress. So H.R. 1 is all about making sure that every person has the right to vote. It has wonderful reforms for making sure that people are signed up to vote, making sure that people have access to the ballot, making sure that people can take the time to vote. It's difficult. We hold our elections on Tuesdays and people have to work. They're not always available. They may be traveling. They may be sick. And what we saw in the 2020 election is if you give people the opportunity to participate, whether it's early voting, mail-in voting, you will have a greater turnout, record turnout on both sides of the aisle. And I'd be the first to say, let's hear from the American people and hear how they're feeling about their democracy and their government, and let's make it very easy for their voice to be heard. I couldn't agree more. And especially as we're seeing some states you know, really go in the opposite direction, putting in more restrictions, making it even harder to vote than it than it already was. It seems as though it's federal action is more necessary than ever. 
It's true. And typically voting has been uh, very local. The decisions around voting have been state by state. But what we're starting to see is a concerted effort in one party, the Republican Party, to deny the right to vote. And I think, honestly, there are parts of this country where Republicans have reached the conclusion that the only way they can win elections is if fewer people vote. And it's anti-democratic. And I think we should allow everyone the opportunity to vote. I come from a very purple district. It was a deep red district before we started to turn it a darker shade of blue. And it's because of people having that opportunity. Young people who are students on college campuses living there for four years, we shouldn't disenfranchise them because they've gone to college in another state. Older people who aren't able to get to the polls because they don't drive or because they're infirm, we should make sure that they have the opportunity to vote early or vote by mail in a way that's convenient to them. So that's, for me, every American should be heard. And I think you you said it well when you're talking about the Pledge of Allegiance and Indivisible. And one of the things I'm struck by is the number of bipartisan efforts that you're making on climate change, broadband access, response to heroin and sexual assault. Can you talk a little bit about why you're so committed to doing things in a bipartisan way, even as the country seems more divided than ever? It's more important than ever. And I will say uh, my background is unique. I was raised in a Republican family. I actually worked on Capitol Hill 40 years ago for a Republican member of Congress. He was a liberal Republican. We don't have those kind of people anymore. But Pete McCloskey from California I was the became the legislative director, worked there for three years, had an incredible experience and knew in my heart that I wanted to come back to Congress and had the opportunity to do so 30 years later. And what I knew from that experience is that it's a tough road to hoe to get legislation passed in the House, passed in the Senate and signed by the president of the United States. Typically, our government is a divided government. So back then, the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, but it was a Republican president. And I learned from my boss that the way to get things done was to create bipartisan coalitions on issues. Back then, I was working on ending apartheid in South Africa, the independence of Zimbabwe, uh, interesting, interesting issues. And the way we did it is we put together bipartisan task force. And so that's what I did when I came back to Congress. The biggest issue in my district in New Hampshire at that point was the heroin epidemic created from opioids that were widely available and were being prescribed in record numbers. And I reached out to my then colleague, Frank Ginta, and we created the bipartisan heroin task force, then called it the Opioid Task Force, and now we've just merged it. I'm working with Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, our Republican co-chair, Jamie Herrera-Butler from Washington State, another Republican co-chair, and David Trone from Maryland. And David had a new member coalition last cycle that we've merged into our task force. We're now calling it the Bipartisan Congressional Task Force on Addiction and Mental Health. And the point being that if we want to get legislation 
that actually passes into law, we need to work in a bipartisan way. I also have a bipartisan task force to end sexual violence, uh, working with Representative John Katko on the Republican side and Dave Joyce from Ohio and Jackie Spear, the other Democrat from California. And I'm very excited about the work that we can do together to combat sex trafficking, to take on sexual assault in the military and on college campuses, and really make a difference in people's lives. How are those conversations going? I guess I'm interested both in the in the substance, how will we address these very challenging but vitally important issues, but then also, you know, in the context of a highly polarized environment, how do you sort of sit down with the other side and start to to build those relationships? What's that look like? Well, we're in a unique situation. So first, let me explain that I was among the colleagues that were the last out of the gallery, the House gallery on January 6th during the violent armed insurrection against our democracy. And truthfully, we all thought that we were going to die that day. So it's been very traumatic for us. I want to commend the Capitol Police for saving our lives and getting us out of there safely. But at the time, we could hear the angry mob of rioters pounding on the doors and We knew that they were armed and dangerous, and we thought that there would be a mass casualty event. So to turn around and work with our colleagues, knowing that some of our Republican colleagues spoke at the rally with the president that incited the violence that day, they had family members that attended the rally, they participated in the objections to the election that created the environment for the insurrection. And what we've decided in our office, I've talked to my staff about is, I want to lean in to work with those members of Congress that believe in our democracy, that recognize the lawful election of Joe Biden and the historic election of Kamala Harris. And I will pick those relationships carefully, but These people that I'm working with now, the names that I mentioned, are among the people that believe in our democracy. They may have been disappointed in the election result, but they came to work the next day to do the work of the American people in a bipartisan way. And I think what I've said to them in our recent conversations, it's more important than ever right now that we can demonstrate to the American people that our democracy is strong that we will get the work done of the American people and that we won't be distracted by a handful of people who want to continue to create headlines. And is that, is that being reciprocated? Absolutely. Among those people. And, and, you know, in private conversations, they're as frustrated as we are by, as I say, a handful of people that are simply counting their social media followers and not focused on the job that's ahead of us, which is there's so many challenges. We're voting today on the American Rescue Package to make sure that we recover from COVID-19. I serve on the health subcommittee and we've been focused on making sure that we increase the manufacturing and production of vaccines and that we get the vaccine into the arm of 
every American, 300 million people. It's a very challenging, important task ahead of us. And that we rebuild, that we work with the president and the vice president to build back better. And so this American Rescue Package has funding for small businesses that have been hit so hard by COVID-19. It has a $1,400 stimulus payment to Americans that are struggling to pay the rent, pay the mortgage, keep food on their children's table. It has an extension of unemployment insurance for 16 million Americans who have lost their jobs and have no income during COVID-19. So these are important steps that we need to take to recover from this terrible pandemic and get our country back on track, get our economy thriving again. Absolutely. Yeah. We're all waiting. I'm a, I'm a county supervisor out in California and uh, we're trying to deliver the vaccines as quickly as they come, but the supply and then the sort of everyday hardship that people are experiencing is, is so hard to, to solve at a local level. And it's such a struggle. Here's the good news. In the five weeks since Joe Biden was inaugurated, we've increased the production and distribution of vaccines by 70%. We're on track to get to 3 million vaccines per day and get them out to the American people. And we're going to reopen schools. There's funding in this package for teachers, for schools to reopen safely. We're going to get our economy back on track. We're going to get families back to work, kids back to school, and make sure that everybody is safe and fed and well cared for. I like it. And I can't wait. You just talked powerfully about the very real threat that you felt during the insurrection. And I'm sorry you had you had to experience, you and the other members of Congress had to experience that, and certainly the Capitol Hill police as well. One thing that strikes me is you've been very forthright about tying your personal experiences and family experiences to the work that you do. And it's obviously politics is always personal, but it feels, you know, it feels extraordinary in this time when, when things are so polarized and scary to expose yourself even further than you already do as an elected official. Can you talk about how you made a decision to, to bring, you know, your, your personal stories into into your legislative agenda? Sure. That's a really excellent question. Sometimes you make a decision and sometimes it happens to you because you're living a public life. So the one very profound experience for me and what led me to create this bipartisan task force to end sexual violence, I had been a a victim, a survivor of sexual assault myself 40 years ago when I worked on Capitol Hill. And I had never told anyone about it. And it was not until the young woman out at Stanford University told her story through a victim statement in a court hearing. And I realized that my generation's silence had in a sense, made us complicit to an environment where people were not prosecuted for sexual assault and we didn't tackle it as a society. And so I came forward and told my story on the floor of the House and um, with a group of women members of Congress. And it was a very powerful moment for all of us. Um, Likewise, with the creation of the 
addiction caucus. My own brother, 68 years old, was prescribed opioids for hip surgery and for many, many months. It was a series of surgeries and ended up with an addiction to opioids and eventually to heroin. And, and to tell that story with his permission, he's now in recovery for three years, is motivates me and makes me it gives me the opportunity to connect with families across this country that are struggling with all of these issues. The issue about January 6th, we were thrust into the spotlight. I'm the woman in the blue jacket with the the gas mask on that was in the photo that went around the world. I had friends in Norway <laughs> inquiring if I was okay from seeing that on the front page of the paper in Oslo. Um, and I think we were traumatized. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, my colleagues and I, there were about two dozen of us that were left up there. We were the very last to be evacuated. And we, it took about five weeks we, with counseling and did some group therapy together around it and had tremendous support from our families. And look, as I said, there's such important challenges that our country faces that we don't really have time to be incapacitated from this work. We've got to move forward and take on and fight for the American people. But at the same time, we do have to take care of ourselves personally and uh, make sure that we're healthy and capable to do the work. And it's compounded by a part of this job that the American public isn't aware of, but it's not the first time that we've had death threats. Uh, many of us from time to time deal with unstable people that are making threats against our lives. And, um, you know, we've all had to invest in greater security and it's very challenging for our families right now. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's important and I'm committed to the democracy and more important than ever before, I want to make sure that American voices are heard and we're not silenced by this type of violence and bullying. Public office is already a big enough challenge. Uh, I think it's incredibly uh, unfair that people have to then, you know, feel like they're risking their lives in order to serve their country um, in elective life. It's it's a it's it's a cra there's a level of craziness um, that hopefully will come to an end sometime soon. Well, and I do want to say, make sure that I give a shout out to the Capitol Police, to the D.C. Metropolitan Police that responded, and to the National Guard that are here protecting us now from ongoing threats, threats to blow up the Capitol. I mean, this is a really challenging time for our country, and we need to make sure that our government continues through it. But we couldn't do it without the support of these incredibly courageous people who are protecting us every single day. And, you know, you mentioned this, but it's important to note on January 6th, 140 Capitol and Metropolitan Police were injured, many of them traumatized and still coming back to do their work. We have conversations on a daily basis. They're concerned for their colleagues. People have serious injuries, life-changing injuries, head injuries, loss of fingers. Uh, one officer is going to lose an eye. And they were beaten and violently 
attacked. Um, and mind you, these are people whose normal duties, when we're not during COVID, there's 10,000 visitors here, tourists that flock to our capital as the iconic um, symbol of our democracy, teaching their children about their history. And these officers are typically directing traffic and, and opening people's purses to make sure that they're safe going in and out of the building. And so the idea that they had to take their lives into their hands that day is something that is with us every single day. As you briefly mentioned, but I think it's worth noting, you, you come from a political family and uh, your father was mayor, your mom was a state senator. How do you think that impacted your decisions and continues to impact how you serve in public life? So I did grow up in a political family. My dad was the mayor of our town, Concord, New Hampshire, and my mom was 25 years in the New Hampshire state legislature, first in the House and then in the Senate. When we were very young, I'm the youngest of five kids, she used to pile us in the back of the car and we'd go door to door uh, doing literature drops and she'd offer us an ice cream cone at the end of the day if we worked hard. But I think what I saw in my parents was an incredible devotion to service and to caring, to compassion. I can remember as a little girl sitting in the back of the room when my mom was meeting with women that were raising their families without support and needing assistance and didn't have health care. And just all of the compassion that she put into her work is with me every day. Um, and I think the notion of putting yourself forward, I always think of her with courage and grace because I had the opportunity to see her attacked in the press and to realize that that can be painful. You have to be tough, um, but the mission that we're on is important and that you shouldn't be discouraged by someone's point of view. And I also imagine being from New Hampshire, there's a special responsibility, focus, intensity that comes with uh, politics. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, I think there's some discussions about changing around the primary calendar and your thoughts on the role of New Hampshire in selecting the presidential nominees? Sure. Well, again, this is something that we've been involved in for a long, long time. As I said, I grew up in a Republican family, so my parents were delegates for Jerry Ford back in 1976. Actually, a side note, my mother was on the platform committee of the Republican National Committee fighting to keep the pro-choice plank in the Republican platform in 1976. Just kind of an interesting point of inflection in terms of how the parties have changed so much. But I've been a Democrat my whole life since I first voted for Jimmy Carter and have worked on a number of presidential elections going back Al Gore and then John Kerry. I got very involved, chaired the Women for John Kerry, went to the convention for Kerry. And then Barack Obama was the big breakout for me. I just poured my heart and soul into it. I was a soccer mom with two sons and growing up and juggling two careers. And in our family, it was a busy time, but I just felt that Barack Obama spoke to me and uh, got very involved again, chaired the Women for Obama, and was a delegate out to Colorado to that convention in Denver. 
and then more recently got very involved. This cycle, I decided to just welcome all of the candidates to New Hampshire. I love got close to Cory Booker and welcomed Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, all, all of them. But in the end, endorsed Pete Buttigieg. I was really very, very impressed with him. And I think, look, there are other states that are more diverse. We're up to about 10% diversity in our state. And I think I look at the early states as a group, as a package, if you will. I think uh, Nevada, South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire all played a role in showcasing the candidates, giving them the opportunity to put their best ideas forward and really putting them through the drill. It's a grueling pace, and you couldn't do it in a large state. Um, you, You would just end up with these sort of tarmac visits, if you will, hopping from one media um center to another. It's a very different process. I remember being with Elizabeth Warren in a big crowd when she was getting a lot of questions and you're just watching her brain figure out, you know, where the voters are, what they're thinking about. They're getting very personal stories and even the ones who decide not to do it. I did an event with Sherrod Brown in a bookstore and, and, you know, then he chose not to run. But it gives everybody the opportunity to see what their chances are, what, what this would look like. And what I think is really important about small state uh, going early is the breakout candidate, the candidate that wouldn't have the opportunity, wouldn't have the resources. Um, you know, and I put in that camp, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, Pete Buttigieg, people that um, were not known nationally before they went through this process. And I, to me, Kamala Harris comes to mind. I don't think she'd be vice president of the United States if she couldn't have had the opportunity to run for president. And the reason she had the opportunity is that she could come to Concord, New Hampshire. I took her to the bookstore where we were doing events um, and she met a lot of people and launched her campaign. And I think that is an important part of how our democratic process works when it's open and available for everyone. Yeah, I agree. I, I I had the opportunity to, to campaign for Al Gore in New Hampshire, and it was an amazing experience to, you know, crawl through the snow, especially for a California boy, and get to people's yes. door. And they they wanted they wanted the vice president to call them personally because they had some questions for him. <laughs> uh, it was they do get a little spoiled. I will acknowledge <laughs> that. Well, he hasn't shoveled my walk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Finally, I want to ask a little bit about your work with the New Dem Coalition. They're a partner of the New Deal. And what do you see as their role in moving legislation forward for uh, for the future? Well, the New Dem Coalition is crucial right now in two important respects. Number one, we're half the Democratic caucus. And so no legislation is going to move 
in the House of Representatives without the support of the New Dem coalition. And number two, we are most closely aligned with the Biden-Harris agenda. And we're working very closely with the Biden administration, already meeting with uh, people key to the administration. And I think it's really important that we have this pragmatic approach. We want to get over COVID-19, get past this terrible virus, get our country back on track and our economy, and get children back in school, get the mental health funding, the addiction funding that we're going to need for people to come out of this in a healthy and productive way, and make sure that we're creating jobs and providing health care so that families can live a modern, productive, successful life. That's our goal. And I'm very excited and very proud of the innovation that's been shown from the New Dems. We work in task forces on economic development, healthcare, trade. We've provided many of the strong ideas that are the backbone of the democratic agenda. We've been meeting with uh, Brian Deese at the White House National Economic Council, Jeffrey Zients, the coordinator of the Biden COVID task force. We will be players in this process in a very pragmatic, practical, practical, productive way. And I'm super excited about our role in this. It's definitely in the eight years plus that I've been in Congress, it's the most exciting time to be taking actionable steps And we'll be a part of all those solutions. And I'm proud of the work that we're doing. We appreciate it. We need need action and we need practical solutions. And I just want to thank you for your leadership. I think it's extraordinary, both in the way the the big issues that you're taking on and but the way that you're doing it, um, exposing, you know, your your personal experience and your voice uh, to make it more accessible for people is uh, it's, it's important. And uh, it's, and to have to go through all that you're going through, uh, I appreciate uh, your service very, very much to our country. Thank you so much, Ryan. That's incredibly kind of you. And we appreciate you helping to get the word out. Take good care. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>